This is a Federal News Network podcast. Secretary of State Tony Blinken is changing course in many ways from his predecessor, Mike Pompeo. One thing both men share is the U.S. Advisory Commission on Public Diplomacy. The commission's charter just received renewal from state. And here with an update on the commission's work, the executive director, Vivian Walker. Ms. Walker, good to have you back. Delighted to be back with you, Tom. Now, it's fair to say that the charter did not expire at any time during the Trump administration. This is something they kept going as Tony Blinken has kept going, correct? Absolutely. The charter is up for renewal every two years, and it has been renewed consistently. And foreign news is really impinging on the United States now from every direction, literally. Maybe not so much from Canada, but pretty much from the east, south, and west. So, again, renew for us our understanding of what the commission does in the first place. I'd be happy to. So the U.S. Advisory Commission on Public Diplomacy is actually an independent federal advisory commission. And these commissions are created to provide insights into explanations for suggestions about issues of interest to the American public. Now, the ACPD is the longest running foreign policy advisory commission in U.S. government. It's been around since 1948. But advisory commissions are not limited to foreign policy. You can have an advisory commission on anything from fisheries to energy questions. But our mandate in particular is to look at how the U.S. government, particularly the Department of State and what is now the U.S. Agency for Global Media, carry out their public diplomacy practices. I mentioned that we've been around since 1948. And in fact, the commission was created at the same time that the State Department was granted in 1947 under the Smith-Mundt Act, the authority to engage in public diplomacy programming. And the commission was created at the same time to keep an eye on those information outreach activities. And public diplomacy means what exactly? Public diplomacy is, broadly speaking, a government's attempt to inform and influence foreign audiences to shape perceptions and even ideally behaviors in such a way that support national security and economic interests. Basically making the case for a country's policies, its actions, its behavior, its culture, its values to foreign audiences so that they are ultimately, if not totally embracing U.S. foreign policies, at least tolerate and understand them. Got it. And so what form does that work take? That is to say, you advise the State Department on ways to do its diplomacy, and that takes many, many forms. So how does the commission come up with the ideas and how does it all work? Well, first, I should point out that the recommendations that the commission provides are not just directed at the Department of State. They go to the U.S. Agency for Global Media, but also they go to the Congress and the White House. The commission itself has three masters, if you will, Department of State, the White House and Congress. And so we direct our recommendations to all three entities. Clearly, the recommendations that we direct to the Department of State are much more practitioner-focused and have very much to do with how public diplomacy is conceived, managed, and funded within the department. Our recommendations to Congress focus on broader issues such as funding overall for public diplomacy, but also recommendations with respect to oversight and management of public diplomacy programs, for example, 
we recommended that Congress carry out an overview of the programs run by the Bureau of Education and Cultural Affairs to make sure that there was no duplication of effort, that resources were being used effectively. So we use our recommendations to Congress to take bigger picture questions about finance and about strategic direction. We're speaking with Vivian Walker. She's the executive director of the U.S. Advisory Commission on Public Diplomacy. Now, right now, you've got four of eight members, if I'm correct. Three of seven commissioners. These are uh, politically appointed commissioners. And one of the unique qualities of the commission is that it is a wholly bipartisan commission. That's probably one of the reasons that the commission has endured as long as it has, is because its ultimate goal is not tied to one particular party, but overall to uh, the best that public diplomacy can do for the American people. Uh, We have, uh, as I say, seven commission positions open, three are filled. There are several folks out there who are actively working on their candidacies for the commission position, but it is a complicated process. It's a presidentially nominated Senate confirmed position. So that means that there are a fair number of procedures uh, to go through in order to get to that point. Then the other very important aspect of the commission nomination proceedings is that if there is a Democratic candidate, for example, there also has to be a Republican candidate at the same time. They have to go forward in pairs. And that, too, makes the uh, nomination process fairly prolonged. But at the same time that it it does impede the rapid nomination of commissioners, I do think that this bipartisan pairing is something that gives the commission its reputation of impartiality, objectivity, and overall sense of the political spectrum. Give us an example of the types of recommendations the commission might come up with. I'll go back to uh, some of the highlights of this year's recommendations that appear in our annual report, our comprehensive report on public diplomacy and international broadcasting, which is available on our website, the U.S. Advisory Commission. We focused on a number of issues, I think, of interest. First and foremost is the plea that the next Undersecretary of State be, if possible, a career Foreign Service public diplomacy officer, a plea that the Undersecretary position itself be filled uh, quickly. In the last few years, as several people have pointed out, there have been more vacancies than occupancies in the position of the Undersecretary of State for Public Diplomacy and Public Affairs. This is a challenge for the practice of public diplomacy within the Department of State because you do need an undersecretary at the highest levels to be able to make the case for what public diplomacy is doing, to make sure that public diplomacy is inserted into the policymaking process, that it be not an afterthought, but an integral part of planning and decision making from the beginning. Got it. And the commission members, this is not a full-time gig for them, is it? No, it is not a full-time gig, nor is it a paid position. The commissioners serve voluntarily. They are required to meet on a quarterly basis in a public meeting forum in which we discuss issues related to public diplomacy, but we pitch it at the American public. Our goal is not necessarily to focus on within the Department of State or within Congress or within the White House, but to broaden understanding for an appreciation of public diplomacy within the think tank community, the academic community, the broader practitioner community, and indeed the people of the United States. 
And from your function as executive director, do you have staff that can aid them in research and so on and make sure that their decisions are informed and that they have the mechanism to be able to get them put together and promulgated? Well, I have to tell you that uh, we have a two-person staff, and that includes me and a senior advisor, a foreign service officer. And together, the two of us produce over 500 pages of reporting packed with data and research and information a year. We do as much as we can, given the resources we have. I believe we have probably the smallest operating budget of any particular office sitting within the Department of State, something on the order of $135,000 a year. And with $135,000 a year, we produce the annual report, which is the single best publicly available collection of data on the practice of public diplomacy available, certainly in the world, as well as a number of special reports that target issues such as countering state-sponsored disinformation. And we have a report coming out soon that will look at changes in the way we classify the work done in public diplomacy overseas. Wow, $135,000. You could use that up at a FedEx copying center. No kidding. (laughs) And a final question, in your view, is watching commissioners come and go without naming names. What makes a good commissioner? A good commissioner is someone who cares about public diplomacy, who understands that the toughest outreach in public diplomacy is very often within In some ways, it's a lot easier to make the case for public diplomacy uh, with foreign audiences, with external groups, because it's very clear why it's important. What the commissioners do, what we try to do as, as, as a team, is to make sure that the practice of public diplomacy is understood and appreciated within the Department of State, within the U.S. government, within the Congress, and within the broader policy community. And if we can help people to understand that change comes through mutual understanding, through tolerance, through acceptance, through information, then we're in a position to make a serious contribution to the success of U.S. foreign policy objectives. And when President Biden appoints those three final members, you're going to whip them into shape then, huh? Absolutely. (laughs) Vivian Walker is Executive Director of the U.S. Advisory Commission on Public Diplomacy. Thanks so much for joining me. My pleasure. We'll post this interview at federalnewsnetwork.com slash Federal Drive. Subscribe to the Federal Drive at Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your shows. We now bring you a special presentation from our friends at WEPA. Shane, thanks for joining us. Can you tell us about WEPA and your new podcast? Mike, great to see you again. The podcast series, Lessons in Leadership, what we're trying to do is, is take a deeper dive, a different angle into the conversation around leadership with great leaders at all levels of government. Uh, Since the 1900s, leadership has been studied in a serious and academic way. Uh, Great man theory, the leader-follower theory, the inspirational leader, transformational leader, all of these are backward-looking development of styles, looking at an individual, figuring out how they did leadership, and then translating it into a form that we can used today to learn, to perhaps emulate, copy. But great leaders, they have more than one style. I think, I truly think that a great leader can adapt and transform into the role that's needed at that time. 
So what we're trying to do is, is talk to great leaders and go a level deeper. Tell us about your, a story in your past. Tell us an inspiration that really affected your ability to lead others. And this certainly applies in the uh, federal space. The federal government, it's over 2 million employees. Great leaders are throughout the federal government, both at the top and the middle ranks. And what we want to do is ask them to pull inside their memory, pull inside their personal history, find those moments in time when they were changed, they were inspired, they learned something about leadership from another person, perhaps it was uh, from themselves, and they brought that to the workplace, and they inspired other and became great leaders. So that's what we're trying to do with the podcast. Okay, so I, I get that you wanted to start with leadership, but what makes leadership such an important topic right now for federal workers? Great question. Leadership today is tested like never before. Um, today's, if I had to put a leadership style, if I had to put names to it, we hear about um, empathetic, we hear transparent, we hear uh, inspirational. So today we have COVID, we have a down economy, we have people, we have social uh, injustice that we're dealing with. There are many new factors. And it's drawing like never before on a leader's ability to pull from within themselves and adapt to the current change. So leadership today is almost brand new again. We're taking all kinds of different styles, attributes, learnings that leaders have. They're looking at the current situation that we're in and understanding how do I move groups of people? How do I move my employees? How do I inspire? How do I get them to the next best place? So I think leadership today, this conversation uh, is extremely relevant, perhaps more relevant than it's been in several decades. You know, we talk about an employee's personal route to growth, but what role does the management side have in this? I think in the federal government, it's, it's a little bit different than it is in the private sector. Uh, my father was a civilian federal employee. Uh, he joined the federal government in the 1960s. Uh, John Kennedy, he was inspired by ask not what your country can do for you, but what you can do for your country. He had opportunities to go in the private sector. That notion of service inspired him. It inspired an entire generation. I would like to think that call to service which is unique in, in the federal space, in the government space, still exists today. Well, that about says it all. But is anything else you'd want the audience to know about you personally or WEPA as an, as an organization? Uh, I have been uh, around the group affinity insurance world for um, three decades. Uh, led This is my second uh, major organization that I've led. And I will tell you that we impart this feeling, uh, you mentioned it, Mike, about service, this notion. We serve those who serve. And uh, I will tell you that it's refreshing. It's a blessing to be there. And <clears throat> I have so much respect for civilian federal employees at every level of government. In this podcast, we're hoping to talk to 
leaders which are similarly inspired and can share their learnings over a lifetime. And uh, this will be useful information uh, for anybody in government service. When you think about something that brings out the best in us, it usually involves helping someone else. By donating plasma at a Griffel Center, you can help save millions of lives and show your good side to the world. You'll join thousands of people who donate safely each week, so patients get the plasma-derived medicines they rely on. And you'll be rewarded up to $1,000 your first month. Learn more at grifflesplasma.com. Grab a 30-day free trial of Live by Live Plus, and you'll get unlimited skips, commercial-free music, and all of the podcasts and live streaming events you can handle. Visit livexlive.com slash podcast one to learn more and start your free trial.